everybody. Welcome to Amazeway on a nice rainy Sunday evening. Continuing our conversation about capitalism and the kingdom of God. And I wanted to start with this song by Alice Gerard, who's a local, uh, local bluegrass artist, actually. I'm not going to be playing it in much of a bluegrass style, but that's, that's kind of her her mode. So anyway, strange land. Traveling through a strange land, strange land. Stranger in a strange land, strange land. No one takes my hand Sunday this year. First of all, Elizabeth played her 
everlasting role in reminding the staff that it was Super Bowl Sunday. <laughs> That's one of, it's not, it's, it's, you know, it's basically on the job description. When you look at everybody who's assembled on staff, you're like, yeah, that's Elizabeth's job. And then we had to say, oh, yeah, you know, it's going to be like Super Bowl Sunday, so yeah, maybe we should cancel. But no, because we're talking about capitalism, it would probably look really bad to cancel for Super Bowl Sunday. And so then we got here, you know, you wake up today and it, and it looks like it does. And it's like, oh, wow, all right, well, all things have come together. This is, this is where it was supposed to end up, right? Rainy Super Bowl Sunday with you here to talk about capitalism together. So yeah, glad to be here for all of that. Uh, yeah, I'm gonna let our kids, is this the final week of this? No. This is the final week, yeah. Because next week we're doing something a little different. That's right. So this will be the final week of this community song that we've chased through Epiphany, and it's been a good one. And Rody, lead us one more time. Yeah, let's sing together. We will walk with each other, Congregations in this practice, and yeah, 
looking forward to that. Second date thing is we have an Ecclesia meeting coming up. And I think this will be the second time that we're going to sort of merge that into this gathering. So um, it will basically take up the space of the dialogue and really, really the bulk of our time will be spent in that conversation around our community life together, about leadership things, uh, you know, whatever lead team wants to come and bring us about. Kyle, our lead leader, is putting together an agenda, even now. So it's going to be the most attended and most watched this year ever. I see what you did there. Okay. (laughs) Anything else announcement wise? That's all I had. Hard to follow that, Kyle. I waited. It is the 18th, and it'll happen in this space, so same time, same location. It will be a potluck, yes, so it'll be a chance, you know, to talk together about our community and then also eat together uh, as, as we're sort of wrapping up around 6, 6.30. And I just want to say, for people who are new to our community, like, it's great. This is, it's a great conversation. I mean, I've only been to one. It is not a business meeting. That's right. It is a community meeting. That's right. It's not like, you know, did you become a formal member of this church? Did you take the pledge? Do you have a little membership card? I don't know if you guys grew up in churches like that. Oh, that's good. <laughs> awesome. So that's what we had announced. Wise. I do want, like, yeah, Mark has sort of jumped back in this week, which we're grateful for. And I think, yeah, notice some things I'm noticing in these songs, which he's put together. We talked a lot in this capitalism series about the weight of capitalism. I think we get that here, what it looks and feels like um, for that reality to hit home at its worst. Um, the, the notion of crossing borders, that increasingly our capitalism is crossing borders pretty willy-nilly and finding the way that we imagine ourselves in relation to other people and walls and borders and really just ties a lot of our intimate realities and systemic realities all together. And yeah, then we've got this notion of water and air, which keeps coming back up. So I think there's a lot of things to follow through here. And maybe Mark has more to say about that. Yeah, I think, um, you know, yeah, that third, the third song of this little set is The Water by, um, by Feist. But it, yeah, it's interesting you say that. I and mean, I, I wasn't picking up, I wasn't thinking about how many times water and air show up. But in this first song that's a Bruce Springsteen song, um, at the very beginning, it, it says that these uh, these two brothers crossed over a river um, to get into the United States to work. So, um, so yeah, water is definitely a theme that shows up here. I also realize, I mean, this first song especially is is there's there's no it, it doesn't end well. Like this this is not going to be um, this is a song of preparation. This is a song to spur us on to thinking about the night. So this does not um, this is not a pleasant song. Uh, in the sense of what happens in the song. Uh, but it's a, one that's meaningful to me because I think, I think it tries to address the idea that capitalistic markets, um, as, as we talked you know, in previous weeks, it's everything that's up on the board. I mean, it, it creates haves and have-nots, but it also creates markets um, where 
somebody has a chance to fill it uh, with work, but they're alienated from their work. They don't own the means of production. Um, and what does that, that mean in terms of um, how those workers can be abused and hidden uh, from, from sight and that kind of thing. So uh, this is a song that I, I really, really like off of um, Springsteen's The Ghost of Tom Joad album, which I think is a great album from beginning to end uh, if you're looking for, for something to listen to by him. I know Laura Wooten's not because she doesn't really like Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> you like what we do here. Miguel came from a small northern Mexico, came north with his brother Louis to California three years ago. They crossed at the river levee when Louis was just sixteen, found work. They left their homes and family The father said, my son's one thing you will learn For everything the North gives It exacts a price in return Look side by side in the orchard From morning till the day was through Dirty dug up ten thousand dollars 
I was thinking about my mind kind of is a little chaotic sometimes, especially these days, but but um, I was thinking of a comment that Christine made a couple of weeks ago in the dialogue where she was saying, I believe you said this, Christine, correct me if I'm wrong. I think you said that it was that um, speaking of capitalism as sort of like just the air we breathe, that we're not really able to even think outside of that. Um, and that made me think of a, of a graduation speech that David Foster Wallace gave um, probably 15 years ago or so now. Uh, but he was telling the story of, of these two fish that were swimming through the water. Maybe you've heard this. These two fish are swimming through the water um, and they're just kind of enjoying the day. It's a nice day. The water feels great. Uh, they're just swimming through. They pass an old fish. And the old fish says, hey boys, how's the water? And they kind of swim on and they swim on and they swim on. After a few minutes, one of them turns to the other fish and says, what the hell is water? <laughs>
about the possibility of some type of macro change uh, and that we're invited into that. But I'm curious, because we kind of had three just really remarkable weeks in this conversation, between last week and this week, or perhaps we want to push it out a bit further, um, just kind of between now and the start of our capitalism series, what specifically about capitalism have you been thinking about or wrestling with, kind of chewing on? Yeah, if you want to kind of put into the dialogue space. What about this series is like, yeah, doing it for you. That's the wrong phrase, but you know. Anyway. So our company is hiring a lot, and um, at the Durham Hand training recently, um, they were talking a lot about jobs. And there was a woman who spoke, um, who spent 16 years in prison, and has come out of prison and is doing really incredible work, and a really kind lady. And so I, I got to have some time with her, and it was interesting because in some ways, since she is like a privileged white lady in a lot of senses, other than she was impersonated, you know, do you know But um, she's able to like work the system to her advantage in ways that other people probably couldn't. But then it's also like, just, and I don't know how much, you know, the jail stuff is tied into capitalism, but just how marked she is. Um, and that's been on my mind a lot of like, what would it be like if we were all kind of doing the worst thing we ever did, or you know, the worst thing legally that we ever did, whatever. Um, but it's, it was really cool to hear how she knows the system well enough to use it to her advantage as much as she can. So it wasn't like a hopeless thing, but it was still very shocking. That's right, and she was speaking too because she had been, did, had been offered a job and then denied the job by HR um, of a well-known chapel. Jairus, there's a really great, um, yeah, you can figure out which one that is. Um, there's a really, it's a, you might enjoy anybody's, Chris Agaranos, actually a pastor here, gave it to me. It's called Race, Capitalism, and Justice. And there's just a thread throughout of how the prison industrial complex and capitalism are so interwoven in multiple, multiple ways. Um, it's a series of essays from scholars, but... Would encourage any of you to read that. Thanks. Other people, kind of what what are you thinking about? My theology professor, what are the 3 a.m. questions that you're dealing with right now within the series? Well, I mean, <coughs> for all, all the sessions, but just tonight I just want to put this out there. Just yeah. listening to Mark Solomon. Yeah. It's like, what the hell is capitalism have to do with immigration? But then I was like, because I, I don't always think capitalism is all bad. I don't yeah, think for sure. All for bad, sure, for sure, for sure. But, um, you know, it's like, wait a second. We, we kind of, we're kind of cheating the system a little bit. And, and that's what, I think that's part of what hurts immigration. It causes such a friction with immigration. is because we've created a system that we think is all great, but we're also kind of cheating the system and tilting it towards ourselves. Yeah. Because if these people come in, like, whoa, 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 we don't want you to have access to what I have access to, um, and, then, and then we have to compete, which is kind of the point of capitalism. 
how capitalism and immigration are interwoven, how James, it's really good articles, and there's apparently a great documentary on this, but right, how capitalism and the environment, right, and climate change are so interwoven, right? It's just, it's interwoven in really everything. And what are we to do about that? Yeah, Elizabeth? Dave and I were talking about how we, um, when we were starting to read parenting books about um, trying to help your kids make good choices, um, all the advice was to you know, major on positive consequences rather than negative consequences. So you're, you're supposed to give them a carrot rather than a stick, right? And um, you're not supposed to give them too much praise, though, because then they'll become addicted to um, people-pleasing. So you're supposed to have, like, sticker charts or some kind of incentive for doing the right thing. And so then, you know, everything becomes a transaction, right? To do the right thing, you have to get paid to do the right thing. And I mean, I, I, we, you know, we've put our own spin on it, but still, sometimes I'm like, hey, so-and-so, can you come help me with this? And they ask, like, can I have, like, in exchange for doing that, will you give me this? And it's just, it grosses me out. I'm like, no, you do the right thing because it's the right thing. You live in this house, you know, but. Petra on Jane the Virgin also is struggling with this reality. <laughs> Watcher. And last night, Andre Petra, though, it talked about can, is there anything in this world that you can engage in, be it another human, a parent, right? Like, is there anything that is not solely transactional? And that is what she's wrestling with. It's on the CW if you want to watch and find out <laughs> what she decides. But yeah, no, I think that is so, so true. For me, I've been thinking um, about a lot of things within the series, um, but since Thursday, Ruby Sales um, was in Durham for the entire kind of Thursday through Sunday. It's remarkable, and on Thursday morning, there was a clergy breakfast, and so at St. Philip's, a room full of clergy and predominantly white, I would say three-fourths, if not 85%, maybe? majority um, of white folk, she said this, materialism is the god of the West. Until the West addresses this crisis, nothing will result in changes, injustice, especially not when most people of faith bow down at the altar of materialism before the altar of God. That got the room quiet. Economic, economic, economist. Um, Joseph Schumpeter, I believe is how you say his name. Harvard, honey, yeah. I don't know. It's fine, sorry. Um, says this, capitalism wants us to want, but doesn't carry within itself any way of evaluating our wants. It trains us toward wanting more, not wanting better. And I think 
if we've established anything over these past three weeks, it's that we're wanting better, right? Better ways to engage the current system, better ways to acknowledge, right, that the system isn't all bad, it's not necessarily evil. There are good things about it, but what do we do with it? Better ways of dreaming about, I think, and working toward a more, more equitable system. Better ways of being in community as a way to live into a slightly different narrative than the one we've always been given, right? Even kind of from childhood, I'm sure lots of us like remember, right? Yeah, chore charts are these transactional things, or I keep on vividly thinking about Brandon, your story from the first week with Aiden, right? Of like just from an early age trying to explain this system and this way of being that really makes no sense, yet it's the one we have. But I think we've also acknowledged, right, how overwhelming it is to not only want better, but to engage better on both macro and micro levels. I think especially so when we all, in one way or another, have acknowledged how implicated and interwoven not only are we to the system, but every, it seems like every single facet of our lives and of our world is interwoven into this system. But I think we've got to try. I do. And so tonight, kind of as we start this turn toward the last two weeks of the series, as we begin to turn toward micro changes of capitalism and how we might shift certain practices within our lives. I wanted to turn to a man who is engaged on the macro level of empire. Empire was working for this guy. Of economics, of being implicated by systems, by being in it. And yet was able to risk just enough be ridiculous just enough to change his micro-engagement with the economic system of the day. And somehow this figure, though I never thought he would be in Sunday school when I learned the famous song about this person, would become a symbol of possibility for me, for us, as we think about the weight of capitalism, the overwhelmingness of it, yet wanting to engage in a better way. Um, he has. He's become, for me, a tangible possibility that doesn't feel overwhelming, necessarily, at what we might do. So, would someone read Luke 19, 1 through 10 for us? Or I suppose we could sing the song to get the same <laughs> text if we would like. But um, if somebody would, would you read Luke? He entered Jericho and was passing through it. A man there, a man was there named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not, because he was short in stature. 
So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree to see him, because he was going to pass that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried down and was happy to welcome him. All who saw it began to grumble and said, He has gone to the guest of one who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, Look, half of my possessions, Lord, I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will pay back four times as much. Then Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek out and save the lost. Thanks so much, Neil. Now, before we even get to Zacchaeus and the Gospel of Luke, the importance of wealth and poverty in this Gospel is tangible throughout. Right? It begins, Luke, in, with Mary and the Magnificat. When Mary speaks of the Lord sending the rich away empty and filling the poor with good tidings, good things, it's the poor, not in spirit like we have in Matthew, but the poor who are blessed in Luke's Beatitudes, for theirs is the kingdom of God. It's in Luke that the foolish rich man builds bigger barns to contain his wealth and then dies that night with nothing to show for it. And his story is then immediately followed in Luke, which is different than the other Gospels, by images of ravens and lilies, right? And the instructions from Jesus, sell your possessions and give alms, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And then three chapters before this narrative in 16, Jesus, after having said in the presence of Pharisees, you cannot serve God and wealth, Jesus tells the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man who ignores the desperately poor Lazarus at his gate looks up from the torments of Hades after his death and sees Lazarus with Abraham. And the rich man begs for comfort and then asks that Lazarus be sent to his brothers to warn them. And it's Abraham that finally replies, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Then we get the story of Zacchaeus, right? So like build, like building up poor and wealth, poor and wealth. And what's interesting about the story of Zacchaeus is Zacchaeus is the last encounter Jesus has with someone before he enters Jerusalem, right? So like this is the last thing, last encounter in the Gospel of Luke. <coughs> Gospel Luke has not been kind to rich, to the rich, or the systems that the rich play in. And Zacchaeus was, in fact, not only a very short man, but a very, very rich man. A big part of the system. He was the head tax collector for Rome in the district of Jericho, which was bustling and booming and had quite a bit of wealth. And he had made such a killing off taxes that he was the richest man in town. And even as the richest man in town, despised by many, Zacchaeus somehow, and the writer of Luke finds it important enough to share this story, that somehow this rich man 
implicated and woven, connected to the system, engages in ridiculous micro-practices and actions to be about the kingdom of God. Before the actual act of changing, right, how he specifically engages the economy, though, Zacchaeus, to me, engages in some unexpected practices and some unexpected actions within the text. Any, like, quick one-word ideas or verbs that jump out to you that you think might be these ridiculous actions, micro-practices? Restitution. Perhaps. It's not one that I was thinking, but yes, perhaps. <laughs> the text? Yeah, yeah, so actual, actually in the text. Climbing? Climbing? Yes. Hospitality. Hospitality, welcoming. There's one more. That I'm looking for. Hurry. Hurry, yes, running, right, running. So, good job. I also realized that was a question that I wanted to Running, climbing, hosting, welcoming. Because in that day, and if we're being completely honest, we generally don't see humans or grown men or women running in the streets through crowds for no apparent reason, right? And then, as a grown human, climbing a tree. It's not a societal norm. It's not something you would do. It's counterintuitive to the narrative and the way things were supposed to be. But Zacchaeus, for some reason, didn't care. He runs and he climbs. One scholar notes that by Zacchaeus running through the crowd and climbing that tree in the manner of a child and embracing his littleness, so to speak, becomes one of the least of these. It is precisely because he humbles himself in this way that he is in a position to welcome Jesus and be transformed. And Zacchaeus, what's interesting about these texts, is not only, right, that he runs and climbs, but that he does so in the midst of a crowd, in the midst of his peers, that he engages in these practices in the midst of preconceived notions of societal norms, and that they weren't the crowd itself, the people, society, was not an impediment to him seeing, engaging, and welcoming the one who changes everything. Daniel Bell, in Economy of Desire, finds that capitalism isn't bad because it doesn't work. It does work, Bell says, but it's bad because in its workings, it simultaneously exploits and further disfigures human desires already disfigured by sin. I think why I find the story of Zacchaeus so hopeful for us and so relatable when thinking about changing our way of being in the system is because his life was working within the exploiting system of that day. Really working. Not unlike many of us. 
And his life, I think, yeah, was probably also disfigured by sin, for being honest, like us. And yet, even with all that, Zacchaeus chooses to live into some different micro-practice. He chooses one absurd practice, I think running, and then another absurd practice, climbing, and then another, hosting. He chooses to engage in a different narrative in this moment. He does not let the weight of reality and systems stop him. And I think it's through these micro-practices, building, right, running and climbing, hosting, encountering Jesus, that he is then able to engage in one final practice, micro, but some might argue starting to be a bit macro, with his orientation to the economic system when he promises not only to turn over 50% of his holdings to the poor, but to pay back four to one all the cash he extorted from everybody else. And what's interesting about the, this passage is the Greek, the verb tense here for the economic exchange, the change, tells us that this commitment is ongoing. Not something he will do only once, but one that shall become a part of his life, a continual transformation and practice. And not only does Zacchaeus choose to engage, right, the economic system differently, but Jesus is at work in the text. We see that it says the Son of Man comes to seek and to save what is lost. And when thinking about Ruby's sales, and the materialism of God versus, I mean, the altar of God versus the altar of materialism. I think for me sometimes, I don't really think that God, Jesus, still is seeking and saving what is lost. But there's something about materialism that seems to show, while not necessarily seeking and saving, so it's at least a pretty, in some ways probably, saves some hole or some part of us that feels lost, or at least covers it up for a while. So I find it interesting that Jesus is at work seeking and saving. In the same way that the Greek is significant of Zacchaeus' practice uh, for returning money, the Greek for Jesus in seeking and saving is also important. So, the gospel in, I'm totally going to mess this up, Solanintime, Solanintime in Nicaragua. Anyway, you should go out and buy it. So, sorry. Solintiname. It's a commentary made by peasants in conversation and dialogue with the father there. And of this text, what they focus in on is the Greek here of Jesus. It's interesting that Jesus says, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. Because he's referring not only to people, but also to things, to wealth, we think. Christ has come to liberate the wealth, making it be shared, and naturally people too will be liberated. What we really have is a change, a conversion, a revolution, 
Jesus is saying it can't only be the individual that is saved. It has to be society, too. And it can't only be society being changed without also being the individual, too. Jesus is saying he does both. Of Zacchaeus, Frederick Buechner notes, he makes a good one to end with because in a way he can stand for all the rest. He's a sawed-off little social disaster with a big bank account and a crooked job. But Jesus saves him and saves his wealth anyway. Or put another way by New Testament scholar Alan Culpepper, a camel could not pass through the eye of a needle, but in Zacchaeus we see that yes, a rich man can be about the kingdom of God. Maybe, just maybe, there is hope for us yet. That's why I find Zacchaeus and this thought of engaging in micro-practices and macro-practices possible. Why I find it hopeful that, yeah, maybe this group of folks could really be about the kingdom and capitalism in different ways. But I want to hear from you for the last 10 to 15 minutes or so. How might the story and the person of Zacchaeus in all of its entirety free us, free our lives to more openly live into economics in a different way? How might this story, how might this notion of praxis, right, micro-practices that build, what might some of those micro-practices be in our lives? Maybe it's not literally running, perhaps it is, but like what are like simple or perhaps complex practices that buck against the crowd that we're being invited into? Or if you still don't like Zacchaeus, you can also disagree with me, and that's fine, too. Well, one thing that um, comes up is uh, how rich he was. This passage is really important to me because it talks about restitution and um, something that I never heard anybody preach about and that I feel like is really important for reconciliation um, along with repentance. Um, I have a lot to say about that, but I'll just, I'll just say that um, it's interesting that Zacchaeus can give away half his wealth and four times what he stole. That's a lot of money. Yeah, yeah. Um, very much so. So is he going to have anything left over? Maybe, his, maybe the reason why Jesus said he's the son of Abraham is because he's about to start living by faith. Hmm. Maybe he's, he's about to be completely broke. But it's also interesting to think like this kind of idea like, oh, once I get 
millions of dollars, then I'll be able to make up for what I've done. And the idea of philanthropy fits right in there. Yeah, for sure. Thanks. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about Zacchaeus. Yeah. And how he is so, so wealthy. And how it was, yeah, this, this man of great, great wealth that Luke chooses to show us is not, um, can change. It can change the way you're a part of the system. But it does leave open the question of, do we still have money? Was he living solely by faith? I don't know. Others, though. How might the story of Zacchaeus, yeah. Well, this story of Zacchaeus reminds me of another story, true story. Uh, I know a lot of you know Shane Claiborne. And he was preaching one Sunday evening in Texas in the wintertime. And he gave an appeal to the people there and said, when I was arriving, I noticed there was a lot of people who were down by the bus station or however he got there who did not have shoes. And he said, so I'm wondering if, if you all would like to bring your shoes up to the altar and give them to God. And a lot of a lot of people did, and they left that church barefoot in the wintertime. But that really spoke to me because it's a sacrifice, you know, and I think that's what this is kind of about, is that we have to, it's, oh, it's one thing to put your money in the offering, it's another to take off your shoes and walk out barefoot. And it just made me think of that. That's so much joy. Yeah, it's one thing. I like that, to put your money in the offering. It's another to take off your shoes and walk barefoot into the winter. Yeah. Yeah, Russell. Um, I love that story. Um, <clears throat> I, so what I'm about to say, I don't want to detract from that at all. Um, Bring it on. I feel, I feel like Zacchaeus and the story of Zacchaeus has been used um, in churches I've, I've gone to, at least, as a distraction. Like, you can personally affect people's lives and, and, and kind of like muddy the waters of systematic changes. Like, don't look over there, look here. Um, and so that's, that's a frustration of mine, even now hearing it. Um, like, because whatever impact I'm, I could sell all that I have. And like, that, that would not be... I mean, that would be very little. We could all sell what we have, and that's not going to be a, a, a drop. Uh, it, it's not. It's not going to change the tide of anything. Uh, and so, I, I do feel like um, Zacchaeus has been used. As, his story has been used as a distraction from effective real change. Very much so, right? I think that's why we have to have both the macro conversation as well as right the micro. Like how are we changing systems and thinking about systems and engaging them and shifting the system entirely, but also how yeah, how are we also being implicated within our lives too? Recognizing that yeah, like it's not 
giving over all of our wealth that is going to change like, the system. I, I guess like the American church, I think big but don't think too big. Um, and so, yeah. And I think that we're doing that with capitalism too, right? Like I think in some ways, because it's like, whoa, this is a huge ass system that is connected to everything and everything's interwoven in it. We just want to take off a piece that we can like deal with. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Because I think what I do like about Zacchaeus and how I sort of see these repetitions, like running and climbing and hosting and right giving is this build. It comes through praxis, through practices that were changed and are able to offer, right, and like give or be engaged in different ways. But I also think as we are taking off a bite we can chew, whatever that is for each of us individually, we also have to hold and remember, no, no, we also are called to really think about, not only think about the system differently, but engage in the system better and perhaps even push people to change the system, right? So like I think it is a, a both and, but a lot of churches do not hold well. But I think if any church can hold it well, it's a community like a man's way. Or a prop, like, right? Like, I do, even in our small status. But yeah. Hold on. Um, this, you bring up kind of part of what my teaching around yeah, totally. what to do with not just my money, but my resources. Because there is, and I was at the meeting about this all week, I was at a talk on Monday at UNC, and the speaker said, we're talking about health disparities, and said, you know, these are population level things that need to change, but I'm also going to talk about things that matter to individuals mm -hmm. that won't be reflected in the population change. And I think that's the tension, right? Like, Very there's so. things that might, the shoes will matter to that person. But the shoes will do nothing to why those people didn't wear shoes, right? Yeah. And what, and is there any way to best leverage whatever resources I do have yeah. to try to make it so that we don't have to worry about the like, yeah. is there anything that would make a drop in the bucket? Yeah. Or is it just meet the people as you can? Um, and that's the teaching, I guess. Very, very much so, right? It's kind of right, like it's really good, the starfish, it's great to throw them back into the sea, but let's talk about why, you know that analogy, why are the starfish even, right. yeah, have to be thrown back into the sea. No, definitely attention, thanks, SK. So I'm struck by, uh, it says, today salvation has come to this house, um, the word salvation, mm -hmm. and um, I think sacrifice is part of the story, but I also think there is salvation. Yeah. Um, so he is restored in some way to himself, to others. Yeah. And I think about the story of the and Lula where she was so harsh, and how I think we might miss that there's actually mercy in what Jesus is asking him to do. Because we're thinking he's going to lose so much, he doesn't see what he could gain. Yeah. So as a micro practice, I think about um, equity and where we put our dollars. I heard recently a study that, um, I can't remember exactly what it was saying, but that if we were to shift our dollars for um, areas where there's less money flowing in, like if we were to set, set this grocery store, go to a grocery store in an area where there's less economic movement, that we could just over, that would be an incredible lever um, for addressing inequality. And I've just noticed that when I have done that, 
I feel so much joy. Mm -hmm. Like, I feel restored. I feel like I'm receiving mm -hmm. Thanks for that, Ms. Kate. Um, come back next week. Sorry. Sorry, Brenda. Real fast. Yeah, real quick. Uh, I don't know if I can. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I, what's been going on in my head is, you know, one of our public leaders, you know, tweeting this week that, um, you know, dollar fifty a week um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, will will mean a lot to a family so that they can buy a Costco card. Yeah. And. Um, it's, you know, focusing on the dollar fifty a week in comparison to what, you know, corporations, that's taken up a lot of attention, but I've also thought about that. Like, what, what is salvation there? It's the ability to consume more in greater quantities. And, and I'm not sure that either party has a vision that's different. You know, they might say, well, $7.50, we should do, another party might say $100, but it's still an order it's in order to spend, right? And um, I mean, it, it reminds me of that, uh, the Zizek idea that's come back here a few times of the way in which capitalism sort of co-ops the giving process itself so that um, even if you are freed in some way, then it's all turned back towards, you know, okay, I'm gonna, now I have a little bit more money, so I'm gonna, you know, purchase at Costco, which pays people better, and I, so I feel better about it, right? There's a way that in which ethics then gets co-opted back into the system. Um, so I, I don't know what the payoff is there, but that's been running through my mind. Thanks for sharing that, Brendan. Yeah, so next week, come back. We're going to wrap up this series, um, but we're going to do so with, as a community, um, really talking about and hashing out kind of these tensions and thinking about what are both micro and macro practices that we feel individually, as a family, community, church, we are being invited into to like try, right? Respond, respond. Um, I have no idea what they're going to be. Like, they could be how as imaginative and bold or as cautious and safe, right? Like, I think there's a huge continuum. But we're really going to write some of those down and talk about them and commit to them as a community for the 40 days of Lent. That um, this is a start and we don't know where it's going to end at the end of those 40 days, but we are open to the salvation that may come. We are open to the ways in which perhaps individually we're changed, but also recognize, hey, there's a hell of a lot more that we need to be doing. And what is that? Um, so yeah, come back. It'll be a good Sunday. Mark, take it away. oftentimes the, the power of art and certainly the, the power of the microphone that I get to, to uh, sing, sing into tonight is the power to suggest 
maybe more so than the, the power to declare. So when art is used as kind of a blunt instrument, um, not that it can't be used as that and be useful and inspiring, but, um, but I hope the songs tonight have been suggestive uh, to prompt us. This song, I think this is, I, this is, this is one of the last great songs that has been written, um, uh, Tracy Chapman's Fast Car. So I think that this is a song that suggests also. Uh, I'm aware that the songs I've chosen tonight and, and even the way that I'm performing them maybe match the weather outside. And so I hope that, uh, I hope that it hasn't been too much of a downer, but at the same time, I, I do hope that it suggests to our imaginations. I remember when we were driving, driving in your car. 
force And your arm felt nice wrapped around my shoulder And I had a feeling that I belonged in I had a feeling I could be someone Be someone, be someone You got a fast car I got a job that pays all our bills Stay out drinking late at the bar Where are your friends and you do your kids I was old for better Come together You and me fine And I got no plans I ain't going nowhere So take your fast car and keep on driving And I remember when we were driving Let's lay out before us, and your arm felt nice wrapped around my shoulder. And I had a feeling that I belonged in. I had a feeling I could be someone, be someone, be someone. You got a fast car. Fast enough so you can fly away You gotta make a decision Leave tonight or live and die this way
This is my preaching and carry clothes this morning. <laughs> so, I do indeed own a jacket. I actually have two of them these days. It's pretty crazy. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you about that another time. But, um, so, I have a, what welled up in me listening tonight was a hopeful and a defiant word on this thing on capitalism. And so, I, I this is embarrassing. I had to look this up. Um, a couple of professors and I have a book that just went to the publisher two days ago, and academics is crazy. I mean, you write these things so long ago, I couldn't tell you what I wrote in this. I had to look up my chapter to remember the title. It's been so long since I've written this. But in quick summary, this is an evaluation of a really, really effective mentoring organization in a very, very white school system. Uh, only for students of color who are low income. And this is largely, I'm the only white person part of this project, looking at this program that is fabulous. Every kid in the program gets a scholarship and goes to college and it's, it, there's wonderful, wonderful, the people who run it are wonderful. But they said, you know, part of evaluating this is you, this team can come in and look at what they do in this program. And one summary of it, uh, we call the book Mentoring Students of Color, Naming the Politics of Race, Social Class, Gender, and Power. And what this program is, is a expert eight-year program on whiteness. 
So every kid in the program develops a white introduction. Hello, Christine. Hi. My name is Tim. I am very interested in being a doctor like my mentor, Dr. Thomas. And I'm pleased to meet you and I'm excited about what you can help me do in this conversation. That's their, that's their introduction. And every kid learns that introduction. And every kid learns to look you right in the eye and to shake your hand and to tell you what they're excited about. And these kids are fabulous. They learn it. One of the chapters, my favorite chapter, is, is entitled, Someone Fabulous Like Me. And it's the story of white mentors, because it's in a very, very white community, so almost all the people who are mentors are, are people of great privilege, and they're white. In the program, and they know this, it's about how to be white in America. But this is my defiant part. I looked this up. I had to remember my title. <laughs> the title was this. I don't think it's changed me, but it has helped mold me. And the point of what we wrote in this was this idea that of the kids of color in the program, what they told us is no matter how much whiteness, how much white oxygen they got, they still retain their agency as people of color. They are still, they are working the system while the system might be trying to choke them. And so this is one of the points that we made, very simply. There's different kinds of agency. I was raised as a white kid to change the world. And I would fail if I didn't change the world. Mimi had it even worse. Every day she got home as a first grader, second grader, look at the kids around the room. Uh, this would be saying like to Grace. Every day when she got home, her mom asked her, what have you done to make America a better place? That was part of the white ethic. I mean, when Mimi's up on her computer at 2 in the morning, sometimes I'll walk through and go, what have you done to make America a better place? And the point that we're making is that there's agency beyond transformative agency. There is an everyday agency that these kids of color, one after another, told us is that we are still being us. No matter how much whiteness we've learned, we are still us, and they have not made us what they've wanted to. Now, we'll work the system for a scholarship because we deserve a scholarship. We're fantastic kids, but we are not them. That was my defiant moment on this, is that in some way we're choked in an economic system that we can't escape, but it does not remove, if it takes away a transformative agency, it does not take away everyday agency. There are things like we see with Zacchaeus that we can do every day with our dollar, with our heart, with our mind that matter. And all those matterings add up to big matterings. So I take us to the table tonight with the reality that this is part of our everyday agency. It's a different economy. It's a different way of living with each other. It's a different way of expecting. And I believe that every time we break that bread and pour wine and juice or give a gluten-free cracker, we are implicating ourselves in a set of agency that not only imagines a much bigger system, but little acts of defiance that spill out in a beautiful way. So as you're preparing for next week with Molly, that might be something I'm going to try to do, is I'm going to try to note my little acts of agency that do not implicate me in a system that grabs me all the time. Join us at the table. God be with you.